Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. comes from Genesis 39, so it's Genesis 39 verses 1 through to 23. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted his care, everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in prison, 
and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Hey again. I want you to take a moment, have a look at this picture and then turn to the person next to you and tell them what you see. All right, let's go to the next one and now flip it. It's the other partner's turn to tell them what they see. Go for it. All right, last one. Let's do one more. All right, good job, good job, good job, I'm sure. Honestly, they all just kind of look like scary monsters to me. Uh, Make of that what you will. 101 years ago, the Swiss psychologist Hermann Rorschach developed the inkblot test. This test where people look at random, theoretically neutral images and they try to find meaning in them. What you see, since these images are supposed to be random and neutral, what you see says more about you than it does about the image. Depending on your perspective, you'll make sense of the images in different ways. We do this in all sorts of aspects of life. Like, take uh, looking at the scars at night, for example. When we look at these scattered stars in the night sky, we try to make pictures out of different constellations. Humans are meaning-making beings. There's something in us that expects to find rhyme and reason. We want to make sense of our experiences in the world. But depending on your perspective, you'll come up with different answers. When some people consider their own lives, they sort of see their life as a story and themselves as a hero. When another looks at their life, they're looking for a life lesson, they're looking for a moral. Whereas another person looking at their life would just be a random splatter of that's why the Bible is so helpful. The inkblot test lets us project any ideas we want onto something that is actually meaningless. But the Bible takes events that might look random and gives them meaning. Followers of Jesus believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in a God who created the world and who continues to operate in the world for his purposes. We believe there really is a big story, this grand narrative that God is writing and that he wants to sweep us up into. We believe in a good God who loves his creation, who loves us and desires a relationship with us. We believe in a God who was willing to enter into his, into his creation and die for us to establish a bridge between us and him. We believe in a God who is bringing and will bring all things together under his rule. A God who will one day bring justice to the world by judging evil. A God who will one day make all things new. That's the grand story that we believe in the Bible. But sometimes it's really hard to know how to fit our own experiences into that massive story. Sometimes it's hard not to wonder, God, what are you doing? And I feel that tension, especially when I look at the story of Joseph. Depending on our perspective, we might see his life in really different ways. Today we're going to consider him, his life, his experiences, and see how we can make sense of them in the hope that it will help us make more sense of our own experiences too. 
Get ready, strap yourself in. We're covering three chapters tonight, and that is so many verses in Genesis. Uh, and there's a lot more that I wanted to cover, so make the most of Q&A. But let me, let me pray. Lord God, uh, we pray that you'd help us understand what you're teaching us through Genesis. We pray that it would be comforting, it would be challenging in the right ways, and it would change us, make us more like you. Amen. All right. It's three and a half thousand years ago, and a Midianite caravan is winding its way through the Negev Desert down to Egypt. Their donkeys are weighed down with the goods they're going to trade when they arrive there. Maybe some cinnamon from the subcontinent, incense from Arabia, a bunch of different fabrics, and slaves they've picked up along the way. And in that line of slaves, tied and tired, and so alone in that crowd of people, is a 17-year-old Hebrew named Joseph. Just a few days ago, he was his father's favorite son, going to check up on his other brothers as they shepherded the family's flocks near Dothan. Now, from the perspective of the traders, he's just a product with a price tag. Recently bought, ready to be sold again at the end of the journey. Does he imagine plans of escape as he trudges along? Does he plot revenge? Does he pray and pray that his dad will come and rescue him? Or is he just too shell-shocked for all that right now? Too numb? On he walked, confused, betrayed, abandoned, and surely so alone. Once they reach Hanus in Egypt, they sell off the slaves in groups or one by one. And this Hebrew teenager, he's handsome, he looks pretty strong, he's well-spoken, and he keeps his head down. He understands his place, so he sells really easily. And he now belongs to Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. From Potiphar's perspective, he's just a, another possession amongst the sea of so many possessions. Those first few months must be so hard for Joseph. The loneliness must feel overwhelming. But Joseph is sharp and he works hard. And Potiphar starts to notice him. Little by little, Joseph is given more responsibility, more trust. And everything he does seems to work out well. After more time passes, he's given the privilege of sleeping in Potiphar's own house. And from that point on, the Joseph effect is felt all over the household. It's like whatever he touches turns to gold. Potiphar needs to do less and less. He puts Joseph in charge of his household, and then eventually he puts Joseph in charge of all of his affairs, to the point that now the biggest decision Potiphar has to make any given day is what he's going to eat, what is he going to drink. But just as Potiphar noticed Joseph, just as Potiphar was paying him more and more and more attention, Potiphar's wife has noticed Joseph too. Maybe she's also lonely. Maybe she's like her husband, entitled and demanding. But she starts to harass Joseph. She wants him to sleep with her. She's brazen in her demands because what's he going to do? Who's he going to tell he's a slave? Even with all his new responsibilities, he's still powerless. 
But despite this, the slave resists. He wants to honor his master. He wants to honor his God. So she lies about him. She tells the other servant and her, her husband that this Hebrew, this foreigner, tried to assault her. He tried to make sport of her. He tried to really make sport of all of them. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But Joseph's golden touch continues in prison. Eventually, the prison warden puts Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners, just like he used to be in charge of all the other slaves. That's the end of our reading that we had, but like I said, we're covering a few more chapters. So in chapter 40, Joseph meets two other prisoners, former high officials who have offended Pharaoh. They each have dreams that really trouble them. But Joseph is able to interpret the dreams for them, informing the chief baker that Pharaoh is going to execute him, and informing the king's cupbearer that he will be forgiven. And Joseph begs the cupbearer when he gets out, when he's forgiven, to please speak on Joseph's behalf. And three days later, just as Joseph had informed them, the baker is executed and the cupbearer is reinstated. Finally, someone who can advocate for Joseph. But then chapter 40 concludes, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Ever since his brothers first betrayed him and threw him into the system, Joseph has been trying to climb out of one pit after another. And each time it seemed like he's making progress, he's then fallen back down to rock bottom. I mean, look at Joseph's life to this point. Betrayed and sold. Exploited and blackmailed. Imprisoned and forgotten. Given those facts, what do we make of his life? What rhyme or reason can we see? What meaning is there? Maybe we might conclude that life is just a random mess, ink splattered on a page. Or that Joseph's just really unlucky. If we bring God into it, we might want to conclude that God is angry at Joseph and he's punishing Joseph. Or God has forgotten Joseph like the cupbearer did. Or that God doesn't care about him at all. God has abandoned him just like his brothers did. When life is really hard for us, aren't we tempted to think those same things? Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God's angry at me. Maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe God's abandoned me. But like I said before, the Bible isn't the same as the inkblot test. We aren't supposed to just look at it and find our own truth in it. It tells us how to understand the things that happen. And the book of Genesis is emphatic that no matter how bad it might look, God hasn't forgotten Joseph. Through the story of Joseph, we see three truths that help us make sense of our own life. Honestly, I come back to these three truths in my own life all the time. If they sound familiar, good. I want you to remember them and 
cling to them and be comforted by them as you try to make sense of your own life at different times. The three things we can learn from Joseph's story. Number one, God is still there. Even at rock bottom, God is still there. God is with Joseph. God still relates. Four times in chapter 39, this crucial phrase appears. It comes up twice while Joseph is a slave and then two more times while he's a prisoner. That phrase is this. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. What does that mean? It means that God is keeping his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God is continuing to bless Abraham's descendants. Just as God walked through all the ups and the really low downs of Abraham's life, he's staying close to Joseph too. When God made those promises to Abraham, if you remember at the start of this series, when he made those special promises to Abraham and his family, what he was doing was he was taking Abraham's family and making that family his own family from now on. And God doesn't forget his family. God won't abandon his family. When we read in chapter 39 how God blessed the work of Joseph in slavery and in prison, I don't know about you, but I thought, Kind of trivial, right? I mean, great, he's a successful slave. He's still a slave. He's a successful prisoner. He's still in prison. But the more I think about it, I bet to Joseph it didn't seem trivial at all. As Joseph continued to see his work succeed, he continued to get these little reminders that God was still there. God hadn't forgotten him. Even at rock bottom, God is still there. God relates. God won't abandon his family. How's that relevant to us? If you've put your trust in Jesus, that means you've become God's child. You've been adopted into his family. And that means for you, even if your life feels at rock bottom, God has not forgotten you. Hard times aren't proof that God is absent. God is still with you. God will not abandon his family. Second truth. God is still in charge. Even when we feel powerless or like life is just out of control, God is still in charge. No matter what the circumstances, God still reigns. Joseph, unfortunately, Joseph is powerless before his brother. He's powerless before the Midianite traders. He's powerless before Potiphar. He's powerless before Potiphar's wife. He's powerless before the jailer. He's powerless to do anything about the cupbearer forgetting him. But none of these masters are ultimately in control. We only get little hints of God's control and power in these chapters, especially in the early parts, but it's there again and again. He blesses Joseph's work, giving him success. He makes people want to promote Joseph really quickly. He gives people dreams and he gives Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams. Joseph's life isn't spiraling out of control. And he's not just stuck in this groundhog day of falling back into the pit again and again and again. His life is being led by God according to God's plan for Joseph. Joseph has no idea at this point what that plan is. 
But God knows. God still reigns. Maybe you also know what it feels like to be powerless. But just that life is out of control right now. God is still in charge. God has a plan, even if we don't know the details of that plan, right? Number three. Even out of evil, God can work good. Even when it looks hopeless, God still works for the good of those who love him. God redeems. As we keep reading the story of Joseph, God's plan does become clearer. Eventually, while Joseph is languishing in prison, the Pharaoh has dreams that deeply disturb him. And the cupbearer remembers at last the Hebrew, that Hebrew in prison that could interpret dreams. Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and God gives him the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams too. Joseph is able to warn Pharaoh of a coming drought and helps him to direct Pharaoh to plan accordingly to save the country. And God moves in Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh elevates Joseph to second in command over the whole nation. God sets it up so that when the drought hits Canaan and Joseph's family are in so much trouble and they need to migrate to Egypt, there's Joseph ready to welcome them, to bring them into safety and prosperity. We jump all the way to chapter 50, the very end of Genesis. Joseph is able to look back and at last see and articulate the plan God had for his life. He tells his brothers who once betrayed him, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God took the evil of his brothers, the indifference of Potiphar, the cruelty of his wife, the forgetfulness of the cupbearer, and he made a way for Abraham's family to be rescued. He took all that brokenness and he made something beautiful. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When we hear that, it's hard not to think of a different Bible story. When the Son of God, full of goodness, full of truth, full of beauty and kindness and love, the greatest thing that has ever been in the world, when Jesus was betrayed and arrested and executed, the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And God took that worst of events and used it to bring forgiveness, salvation, eternal life to the whole world, to anyone who wants to put their trust in Jesus. God redeems. He can take the worst thing that ever happened to bring the best news possible. God redeems. That doesn't mean we we won't have trouble. It means he will bring us out of trouble in the end. In this life, we might not get the moment Joseph had where he could look back and he could just easily summarize God's plan for his life. But we're not followers of Joseph. We're followers of Jesus. And because of Jesus, our stories don't end with this life. If you've put your trust in Jesus, if you've given your allegiance to him, if you are following him, then your life will not end in misery. 
It will not end in tragedy. It will not end in grief or depression or loneliness or despair. It will end in glory. No, I shouldn't say it will end in glory. It will go on forever and ever and ever in glory with Jesus Christ. That's our story. God is still there. God is still in charge. God is still at work. God relates. God reigns. God redeems. God won't abandon his family. But don't abandon your God. Don't give up on him. It's an incredible thing that Joseph, as a vulnerable slave, has the courage to refuse Potiphar's wife and risk prison. He'd rather honour his God than protect himself. He knows that God hasn't abandoned him, so he won't abandon his God. Life is often confusing, overwhelming, even heartbreaking. And we'll struggle to make sense of it sometimes. But as you struggle, have courage. And remember, God won't abandon his family. So don't abandon your God. Let me pray. Lord God, could you please give us the faith to believe that? Because when we're in the pit, it's really hard to trust that you're still there. We pray that you would fill us with the confident knowledge that you are with us, that you're still in charge, that you're still working things for our good. We pray that we could believe this so that we will not abandon you come what may. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.